Have you ever noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find that they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular, or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to people who change what is politically possible. Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Michael Van Beek, Director of Research at the Mackinac Center, and your host for today. The topic of the podcast is laws about selling cars. Did you know there are laws about who can sell cars and where and when they can sell them? Car dealerships aren't just normal retail businesses open to competition. They rely on a business model that is dictated by state policy. In many states, it is illegal for anyone to sell new vehicles except for established dealerships. Well, joining me on the Overton Window podcast is a leading expert on the issue. Dan Crane is the Frederick Paul Firth Senior Professor of Law and Associate Dean for Faculty and Research at the University of Michigan Law School. He's an expert on antitrust, intellectual property, regulation, and administrative law, and probably a bunch of other stuff too, but we'll just list those for now. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. Uh, great to be on the show. So to start, Dan, could you explain a little bit about the history of laws about selling cars? Sure. So if you go back to the early 20th century, when the mass produced uh, automobile was beginning to be sold to the consuming public, you had a whole variety of different models of how those cars were sold. Sometimes they were sold through a company-owned store. Sometimes they were sold by traveling salespeople or by repair shops. Sometimes they were sold through um, mass merchandisers like like um, like a Sears. Uh, other times they were sold through franchise independent dealers. What happened in the middle of the 20th century, sort of mostly after the Second World War, was that the dealers began to argue that they were being taken unfair advantage of by the big three car manufacturers in the country at the time. The dealers at the time were mostly sort of mom and pop, small family owned businesses. Uh, and they argued that uh, when they were agreeing to distribute a Ford or a Chevrolet automobile, that Ford or Chevrolet would be taking unfair advantage of them in a variety of ways. One of those ways was by both franchising an independent dealership and then opening its own company-owned store across the street so that it would siphon off all that investment in the brand that the independent mom-and-pop dealer had done. And so in the 1940s and 50s and into the 60s, in every state across the country, the dealers successfully argued for a series of statutes or laws that protected them in their relationship with their franchising manufacturers. Um, for example, limitations on when they could be terminated by the manufacturer, uh, limitations on how close the manufacturer could put another franchise dealer location, limitations on or, or requirements that the manufacturer reimburse for certain kinds of warranty work. And the one that's most important to our conversation today was most states had some sort of kind of a prohibition on the manufacturer selling directly to the public. The idea was if you're to uh, in, in, in induce reliance and investments by your franchise dealers, then you need to let the independent franchise dealers do all the selling, do all the servicing, and you cannot unfairly compete with your own franchise dealers by opening up your own retail stores or service centers. 
And that's mostly how the law stood in, in most of the states until Tesla's challenge a few years ago. Yeah. So on, the, on this podcast, we talk a lot about the Overton window and study how this changes over time. So it sounds like, you know, back in the 40s, when these laws were established, the car dealers were making some sort of appeal. I mean, what kind of appeal were they making to policymakers or to the public about why these things were necessary? Because they couldn't just say, this is in our naked self-interest and we need to protect our business. But they must have been saying something else. Right. So this was very much the time of small business protection. And uh, mm -hmm. if you think about, say, the Robinson-Patman Act of 1936 passed by the United States Congress, the whole idea was protecting small retail stores against um, sort of the mom and pops against the power of the chain stores, the A&P or the, the Walmart of today. Um, and so this was very much a time in which uh, there, there was this political economy idea that um, certain kinds of small businesses need, need protection um, of certain kinds against big companies. And, and so, it, I mean, was it really an appeal to naked self-interest? I mean, I, I don't think they would have put it that way. They would have said, look, we're really important um, to these local communities. We do a lot of good in our local communities. Uh, and, and there's a fairness point, though, which is these big, um, you know, international companies are taking unfair advantage of us. And, and so it wasn't just automobiles. There are a number of different contexts in which states and, and the federal government pass laws intended to protect um, small businesses from the unequal bargaining power uh, of the big companies. So that, that very much was the context. And one thing that's important to understand is that although today the, the discussions around direct sales are mostly happening in consumer protection terms, these laws had nothing to do with protecting consumers. The claim was never that the manufacturers, Ford and GM, are exploiting their, their, you know, the retail consumer as well. The argument was always they're exploiting unfairly the franchise dealer, the mom and pop. Yeah, and that's in the antitrust and in the understanding of competitive markets, that, that whole uh, philosophy has changed, right? About regulation should be about consumer welfare and not necessarily as much about just protecting a certain type of business. Is that right? That's right. And so I, and I think the, the car dealers lobby, which is, uh, you know, the interest in some sense that's fighting uh, to preserve the status quo from the 1950s, which prohibits manufacturers from selling or servicing directly to, to consumers. Uh, they understand, and this I think goes to the Overton window point, that they understand that it's no longer politically feasible to argue for protecting the dealer, like as, as if we kind of care about protecting these businesses. I mean, for one, they're mostly no longer small businesses. So the, the car dealership model has gone from that mom and pop model to a model where the largest dealership networks have billions upon billions of dollars in sales. They're multi-state, multi-dealer um, businesses. Um, when you, I, I've, I've published some, some data on this. We look at the data. Uh, many of the, the dealerships uh, as businesses are larger than many of the car companies in terms of their revenue and their power. So it just no longer it, it no longer makes sense politically uh, for these big dealerships to say, "Hey, we need protection from the manufacturers." Also, on the manufacturer side, uh, it's no longer dominated by three car companies. We have about twenty car companies uh, that are competitive in the market. So all the dynamics in this industry have changed. But Mike, you're also right that the, the, the what's politically feasible has changed. Um, we don't 
uh, it's not it's not I think politically viable uh, to make explicit protection arguments for a business like I want protection from competition because I'm worthy of it uh, I want protection because I'm used to it right I mean it really has uh, the, the whole the whole focus from left to right has really shifted on to the consumer what's good for the consumer and so now the dealers are are trying to say that these laws which were originally intended to protect them from the exploitation by manufacturers uh, are actually intended to protect consumers. And, and we can have that conversation, but those arguments really don't make much sense at all. And the, the other thing has changed is society's expectations, right? I mean, I think it's archaic that in Michigan, we still have a, sun, a blue Sunday law on selling cars, which means you can't sell, technically you can't sell cars, any kind of car used like your secondhand car to your cousin. You can't do that on Sunday. Right. And I say technically because I've bought in cars in Michigan on Sunday. So <laughs> it's not actually a law a that person. is enforced. Yeah. So uh, I think society's expectations has changed too, right? Like uh, the way we purchase products, the way we shop is a lot different than we did back then. We There's fewer gatekeepers. We go directly to the manufacturer a lot of times. Exactly. And I think I think the average consumer today, um, for most products they buy, expects to have a choice to have have some, lots of say in how they buy the product. So you think about Apple, extremely successful company, right, that sells lots of, of physical products that people like. How does Apple sell? Well, they do sell some through independent retailers. You can go to Best Buy, uh, maybe even Target, and, and buy an iPhone. Uh, you can also go to your your AT and T or your Verizon and and, and buy uh, and buy the physical device. But you can also buy it directly from Apple. You can go to an Apple store, or you can buy it online. You can buy it from Apple, or you can buy it from someone else. So that's a kind of a mixed distribution model. And people are just, just assume that, um, of course, if Apple wants to transact with me directly, if I want that to happen. Um, and by the way, like I, I buy lots of Apple products. And I much prefer going to the Apple store. I get, I, you know, I get uh, uh, people who, who are more knowledgeable about the product. They work directly for Apple. Apple's accountable for it. They can't just deflect, well, you know, that's an Apple problem. So I, as a consumer, often make the choice that I prefer to buy directly from Apple. You want to buy a Dell computer. Traditionally, that was not sold through independent retailers or a compact. Those were direct sales models only where you had to buy from the, from, from the company. But if you wanted to buy a Toshiba or, or another, um, another kind of computer, you might be able to buy it from a big box store. So again, consumers are used to the idea that they get to decide, that they get to figure out, do I prefer to go uh, bargain with a dealer on a lot or do I get to buy it directly from the manufacturer? And that's what I think is at the center of this debate over direct sales is who decides? Do the dealers get to impose a one-size-fits-all model from the 1950s that denies consumers who, as you say, have come to expect that they get to decide? Do you deny that choice to the consumer? Yeah, so... Uh... Explain now a little bit about Tesla and the situation with direct sales and how that kind of challenged the uh, system in place that everything had to go through car dealers. Right. So from that period we talked about before, from, say, the 1940s or 50s, um, up and th up really through about 2013, 14, when Tesla began selling uh, the Model S, um, that was the system. We all kind of grew up, you know, going to the car dealer and, and we probably didn't pay too much attention to the fact that that Ford dealer wasn't actually owned by Ford. It was an independent company. Maybe we did, but um, there wasn't really much of a choice. Uh, once in a while, Ford or GM would kind of do a little experimentation with some kind of direct sale. 
And then the car dealers would fight back and shut them down. There might be litigation over it. Uh, but basically, it, it wasn't something that most people focused on. What really changed was the advent of the electric vehicle. And Tesla, of course, being the first mass market electric vehicle, was the one that pioneered this change. And the reason it changed was that when Elon Musk looked at you know, his need to sell these cars on a mass market basis and looked at the traditional dealer model, he's like, no way that's going to work. I mean, for one, just the cost of building up that whole dealership network were a lot. But more importantly, he saw very quickly that dealers had a fundamental conflict of interest, that they, the, 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 the dealers who, who sold uh, internal combustion cars were not going to want to sell EVs in the same way. I mean, here's, here's one of the reasons for that. If you think about the way dealers earn most of their money, it's not through selling new cars, it's through servicing them. Their, their profit margins on car sales are about maybe 5 or 6% at best. Their margins on service around 30%. So really, the, the, the selling of the car is an opportunity to have that car come back and, and particularly for warranty service to be serviced by the dealer on which they make these huge margins. With EVs, the service um, uh, profile is very, very different, right? There's no oil changes, fewer moving parts, much less of a service component. And so the dealers just know that they're not going to have that same opportunity to make the money on the service with EVs as they do on an internal combustion car. The whole business model of the internal combustion sale at the dealer is sell whatever you have on the lot today. Um, get, you have inventory on the lot, you try to sell it, and you have commissioned salespeople who don't get paid unless they do. They don't care about really in, in investing you in wanting to buy that Ford Fusion. They want you driving away on the car they have on the lot today. In, in, um, the, what, what Tesla does, what all really the, um, the, uh, the uh, um, electric vehicle manufacturers do, is build to order, right? You, you, you select the, 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 the kind of car you want, the color and so forth, and then they, they, they build it for you to order. And so it's not based on inventory on a lot at all. Again, so the whole model, and for other reasons, the whole model that economically supported the dealers was going to be revolutionized by the, the introduction of electric vehicles. And Elon Musk said, it, it's not going to work for me to be successful in introducing this new technology to the market to have to go through franchise dealers. And so he decided we're to sell direct. And then that set up the wars between Tesla and the car dealers. Car dealers started saying, look, there are these existing laws that say you can't, or if the laws were ambiguous, let's pass a new one to make it clear that you can't. Let's bring lawsuits. Let's bring regulatory proceedings. Let's do everything we can to use the existing state law structure to shut down this new technology from going around the car dealers and being accessible directly by consumers. And did did Tesla find a state where they could start to sell directly? And I mean, there's all these different dynamics that happened between the states and where right. Tesla was selling. It's, it's, it's a very complicated story. It's kind of hard to put it in, in, in a very easy nutshell because it's, it's 50 different states and each state has its own laws and no two are identical. But a good example of a state that was very open was California, which is also, it's important, uh, you know, for lots of reasons. Technologically, it's important. Uh, Tesla was, was, was based there and big and, market <laughs> and a big market. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a quarter of the economy, right? Or a fifth of the economy. And so what California law said, and this is actually, I think, sensible in many ways, is that a franchising manufacturer cannot open up a deal, its own company-owned dealership within 10 miles 
of a existing franchise dealership. So there's a protection from competition, like that may be good or bad, but it doesn't have any effect at all on Tesla because Tesla's not franchising at all, right? So, I mean, even Ford or GM under this model could open up their own store as long as it's not within 10 miles of a existing franchise Ford or GM dealership. But for Tesla, it means they can operate anyway, because once you're not using franchise dealers at all, the law doesn't block you, right? And that, and that I think, is important because it also goes to the original purpose of these laws. If what you're trying to do is protect a franchise dealership in its relationship with its franchising manufacturer, then it makes no sense at all to apply the laws to a Tesla or a Rivian or a Lucid that doesn't use franchise dealerships at all. And that's what the Massachusetts mm -hmm. Supreme Court held in 20, uh, 2014, which is this law was meant to protect a franchisee in a franchising relationship. It was not meant to block competition between different kinds of brands, which is precisely the way that dealers want to use this law today. Yeah, and if, uh, the story in Michigan, too, is very interesting because I think it's a good test case for why um, lawyers are important. Right. Yeah, a single a single word, single in word. A statute made all the difference. Can you tell that yeah, story? It, it, it's it's a it's a funny. I mean, with hindsight, a bit of a funny story. Uh, I guess I find it satisfying vaguely because now Tesla can basically do what it wants in the state. But so here's what happened in Michigan in in 2014. The statute on the books um, said that um, um, a manufacturer could only sell cars through quote its franchise dealership. The word it's suggested that this meant that when you had a franchise dealership, you could only sell through your franchise dealership. Arguably, at least, it meant that if you didn't have franchise dealerships at all in the state, then this law didn't apply to you and you could sell directly. At least that was a arguable position. So um, the car dealers got wind that Tesla intended to open dealerships in the state. Uh, they knew exactly what Tesla would argue because the Massachusetts Supreme Court had just decided not on the same statute, but in, in, in a broader way that the, the law was only intended to protect franchise dealerships in a franchise relationship with a manufacturer. And the, the dealers in Michigan were terrified that Tesla would uh, take advantage of this word it's to say, well, it's the same thing, right? We're, we don't have franchise dealerships, so that statute doesn't apply to us. And so in the midst of a, uh, of a technical committee hearing over an entirely unrelated bill, they got the word it's struck. So now it said that a manufacturer can only sell through franchise dealers, which totally changed the meaning of the statute and would have the effect of, of, of blocking Tesla. Um, so, so uh, of course, Tesla finds out about this after it comes out of the committee. Uh, there's like three weeks left before the gubernatorial election and the governor at that time just signs the bill into law. Uh, and, and with that one little word, and, and by the, and then the dealers were saying, of course, it has nothing to do with Tesla. It, it had everything to do with Tesla. They, they procured it. They knew it. it was, this was just a misrepresentation and, and it becomes the law. Right. And, and then there was a long period where there were, there was a possibility in Michigan of, of, a, of an amendment to the law. Um, and, and now you, you, you bring in public choice theory about how hard it is to change the law, how incumbents have a huge advantage uh, uh, against reform of the law. And so finally, in 2016, Tesla brought a federal lawsuit um, against the state, arguing uh, on constitutional grounds that what, they, what the state was doing to block this competition was unconstitutional. And then in 2020, uh, the attorney general settled with Tesla in a way that I think was very, very clever uh, and, and effective, which was to sort of to stipulate that the meaning of sale 
in the Michigan statute only means the actual act of turning over the title to the vehicle. Everything else related to what we sort of think about as a sale, you know, the having having a retail store, having test drives, doing trade-ins, quoting a price, setting up the transaction, everything else that goes into selling a car, Tesla can do under the settlement. The only thing that technically has to happen is when the sale happens, um, it's the car is being sold from uh, you know from Tesla in California or something. That's just a you know it's it's, it's a ephemeral transaction and it doesn't affect Tesla's ability to sell the car at all. So that so that's not a te- that's not a statute that's the interpretation of the attorney general entered into in a settlement with Tesla but what it means is that Tesla and other EV startups uh, at least can open stores so in my hometown of Ann Arbor now there's a big Tesla store um, I went in there a few months ago and said hey can you sell me a Tesla they're like yeah we'd love to do it I'm like ah that was a trick question actually you can't but I know what you mean <laughs> right um, and so and so again from from the, the perspective of the people on the ground the customer the people this of course they're selling a car in, in, in the literal sense of the word but uh, because of this resolution of the technical meaning of the Michigan statute uh, they, they've gotten into the state uh, now they have various uh, sales and service centers in the state. So again, th- that's, I mean, in, in many ways, that's a story about how how lawyers, you're absolutely right, lawyers had to work this out. It delayed Tesla's entry for many years unnecessarily. Um, but at the end of the day, um, lots of this skirmishing does happen at this kind of very granular level of what the statute says, what it means, constitutional challenges to it, and so forth. It also seems to me to highlight the challenge of making policy change happen because especially in this case you've got 50 different states with 50 different laws written slightly differently that have it's in different places and you know it's uh so tesla has to go through this long process in michigan trying to uh battle against a bill and then file a lawsuit and then get a settlement and you know and is this happening in other states? I mean, absolutely, yeah. And, and you're absolutely right. It, it's state by state, and it's it's sometimes it's Tesla, and then now we sort of have the next generation of EV startups. So, uh, Lucid um, is, is fighting some of these battles. Rivian's been fighting some of the battles. There are others out there as well uh, that are all in the same boat. Um, and, and although I should say, not everyone's actually in the same boat because one of the things that happened was that in some of the um, uh, the legislative hearings in the sort of 2014 to 15, 16 timeframe, Tesla was able to cut some deals where um, states pass basically carve outs for Tesla. It doesn't identify Tesla by name, but it says things like a company that is, is selling EVs in the state as of date X, like can have a certain number of stores in the state, right? And those were basically one-off compromises. And I'm not a big fan of those. Like there should not be one law for Tesla and one law for everyone else. Frankly, there shouldn't be one law for Tesla and a different law for GM. Like there should be, I mean, in my view, every car company should be able to open up at least to sell EVs directly uh, to consumers, however it wants to do. Um, so so now in some ways, Tesla has largely won. Like they're still fighting in, uh, in Louisiana, for example, the, 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 the Auto Dealers Commission is trying to shut down Tesla's uh, service center in New Orleans because you can't you can't have your own service center. You can't. There are thousands of people in in, in Louisiana who who have a Tesla. They bought on the internet or they bought out of state, and and now Tesla just wants to service those cars, which it has a a federal statutory obligation to do. Uh, and and the dealers like are trying to 
even shut Tesla from having a store that services its own cars, which is imagine that, right? So that 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 case is 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 up on appeal in the Fifth Circuit, um, but uh, and 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 Lucid is is fighting in Texas. So there are uh, both. Court challenges ongoing. There, there are um, hearings all the time in, in states, either to, to take things forward or to take things back. So it's it's not settled. But if you if you just want to sort of take a gestalt look at where things are, go to Tesla's website and look at their um, their their um, pull down menu on where they have retail stores and where they have service centers. And you look at it, and it's most of the country. Uh, certainly, most of the, the states that that are that are large. Uh, I think it's I, I don't have the number in front of me. It's 30, 30 or th- or forty states. Tesla has boots on the ground, and what that tells you is that whatever these state laws do or mean, basically Tesla has won most of the war uh, for Tesla at least. And now the question is, everyone else coming behind them. Has there been any states who have kind of used this opportunity or this this moment where you know direct sales? are becoming more and more possible and uh, becoming more common to really revamp the laws that they have about car sales and and not do this piecemeal kind of thing? Some states have, like, you know, Colorado, for example, basically, and Florida both passed statutes that basically allow EV um, only manufacturers to sell. Um, And um, in my view, that is problematic I mean, on the one hand, I would say good, because at least the Teslas and the Rivians and the Lucids of the world can sell directly in the state. But it does create an uneven playing field as between the legacies and the startups. And I'm not, although I've worked really, I mean, I've never worked for any of these companies. I don't, I I, I refuse to be paid by them. I I, want to keep my own counsel here. And, And the reason I do that is that I'm not a cheerleader for Tesla or for Rivian nor am I a cheerleader against Ford or GM or Honda or anyone else. What I want is, is generally applicable and neutral laws that let consumers decide how they want to transact with any company. And so one of the difficulties that, that has arisen is that now you have in some states these legislative carve-outs that basically say, okay, if you're an EV-only manufacturer that doesn't use franchise dealers, then go for it. Do what you want. But anyone else, like if you're Honda, if you're Ford, um, then you still have to go through dealers even to sell EVs. And that, frankly, is putting EV sales by the legacy companies at a competitive disadvantage compared to EV sales by Tesla. It's not surprising that Tesla continues to have overwhelmingly the most uh, EV sa- sales in the country. I mean, it's, it's a good company, good product. But but also, I, I really think that these um, these distribution laws are putting back uh, the legacy's ability, and as we shift towards EV sales increasingly, um, that really means that the survival of the legacies is going to be threatened. So I think there's still lots of legislative work that needs to be done. I would personally favor a federal statute that slices through all this nonsense and um, and, and allows for direct sales of EVs by anyone, uh, but I just haven't seen any political momentum towards that yet. Do you happen to know what the markets like in other countries uh, in, in yeah. the EU. How does this work? So, so it, it's interesting. Um, I, I've never quite gotten to the bottom of this on a global basis, but it's certainly not the case that uh, direct sales are prohibited everywhere. Uh, so, country by country in the EU, uh, there are other kinds of restrictions in place, but there are certainly are places where um, 
car manufacturers have their own stores and sell their their own products. So this is a and I like have heard no evidence that that somehow is like harming consumers, right? Like any more than Apple selling its own its own phones harms consumers. So around the world, uh, not just even beyond Europe, there there's, there are there are examples, many examples of, of places where the car companies do operate their own stores. They operate their own service centers. Um, and it should be clear, I, I have, there's nothing in principle wrong with using franchise dealers. There's, I mean, the same reason, like you go to a supermarket, you, you never buy ketchup from Heinz. Like that makes no sense economically. You want to buy a basket of products. They have to be sold through an independent retailer. So all kinds of good reasons to have independent retailers selling products that other people make. And and even as to cars, there may be very good reasons why some part of what we buy would be from dealers and people have a choice, right? So I, I think what the global example shows is that there's nothing fundamental about needing to, to, to buy through a dealer that should make us think that that you can't have direct sales. Like, of course, of course you can. And for most products in most places in the world, that's going to be an option. There's also some interesting question that come up for me on uh, this issue, which one is, you know, the you described how the dealerships have changed over time. They've evolved into these very large conglomerates, this multi-state. I wonder if that would have happened if we had different regulations in place. And, you know, did, did they develop that way because they were protected by state policy? Um, and the other thing I, I wonder about is what are the costs of of this it's it's all sort of behind the scenes most consumers don't have any idea what's happening with tesla and all the legal battles they have to fight and all that kind of stuff so do you have any ideas on that of you know what what is the impact on consumers from having these byzantine and archaic laws yeah those are, those are both great questions i mean as the question of of why the dealers grew to the scale they did i mean i i I don't know. I mean, I could speculate, but I I do think that the dealers having a certain degree of protection from competition has allowed them to become, you know, big bloated organizations. Uh, And if you just think about this from the perspective of the consumers, like I've bought many cars from dealers over my adult life. I've never once enjoyed it. And and I, again, this is just (laughs) idiosyncratic myself, but I I mean, I remember time, I mean, this has happened to me at least two or three times when I went to a dealership, they quoted me a price and I was set to like, I came to the closing to pick up the car and the price that was on that they were asking for me was thousands of dollars more than the price we'd agreed. And I'm like, what's going on with this? And like, there's some story, like we're adding this on or, or, or at one time it was, we made a mistake. The dealers have been more complained about to the Better Business Bureau than any other business in America, hmm. including cable companies and debt collectors, which tells you something, you know, about, um, about, you know, the, the level of satisfaction. I, I mean, I personally, I don't like bargaining for a car. I like the one size fits all model of a Tesla. I, mean, I haven't bought one yet, but like I much prefer not to haggle over the price. Um, there's there's considerable evidence, for example, that when there's haggling over prices of automobiles, um, that white guys like you and me, Mike, we end up doing better off and, and women and minorities end up paying more, right? Uh, and not surprising, right? So, so there, are, there, are, there are equality, there are equity issues, there are just you know, what you want to deal with. So I, as a consumer, would much prefer to have the option at least to say, I want to go on the internet and sign up for a Rivian or Tesla or Lucid. I don't want to haggle the price. I want I want the same price everyone else gets. 
Uh, I want to see all the terms, not in that showroom where the guy, you know, with, with, with the purple shirt is breathing down my back to, to, to sign up today. I want to be able to sit calmly at home and, and analyze my choices. That's the, that's the way I, as a consumer, prefer to buy, right? And I want that. I want to be able to have that choice. In terms of, I think you're absolutely right in terms of, of, of the fact that most consumers, though, don't understand what the costs are. What, what are the real costs? Well, there, there have been some econometric studies done. There was a Justice Department study a few years ago that suggested significant cost savings to consumers uh, from direct sales. Um, uh, we don't have a lot of data on that, but there is certainly an intuition here that this, I mentioned public choice theory before, and it's exactly what you'd predict from public choice theory, which is to say that the dealers have a concentrated interest in preserving the status quo, whereas the average consumer incurs only a relatively small cost from it. The costs are spread over many, many different consumers. It's very much like casket sales, which there's been the same kind of thing happening across the country. Funeral homes have been, have lobbied, and most states have have have, have achieved um protections from competition, which is you, you can only buy a casket from a licensed funeral home. And, and then they've got you, right? You, no one, no one's thinking about buying the, 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 the casket for grandpa. All of a sudden it happens and then you have to pay whatever they charge you, right? They've got you, right? But to the, to the, the, the funeral homes, that's a very, very uh, uh, concentrated benefit. So they will spend a lot of money lobbying and protecting that position, whereas the consumer interest it's, it's much harder to mobilize. Now, the good news is in the last few years, the consumer interest has become more mobilized. So although the dealers argue that this is consumer protection, uh, the Consumer Federation of America says that's baloney. Uh, you're the problem and direct sales should be allowed. The United States Federal Trade Commission, which also looks out for, for, for consumers' interests, says that's baloney. Um, you're not protecting consumers. You're hurting them, right? So uh, we, 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 we're starting to see the mobilization of, of the consumer uh, community saying, we get this now, and and these dealers are not making arguments that are in our interest. The dealers are protecting themselves; they're not protecting consumers. Let consumers decide. But that really does take a lot of investment of political capital. I mean, I've been at this for 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 ten years now, uh, and 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 it's just it's it's hard to explain. The history is hard to explain. Uh, the the dealers come in; they talk about you know how how great citizens they are and how. Uh, you know, a Tesla will take advantage of someone. And, it, and, it, and to, to to work out why that's not right takes a lot of effort. And to get people to care about it takes lots of effort. Uh, and the dealers, all they have to do is is defend the status quo, uh, which they are highly incentivized to do. So, so again, it's a classic case of public choice theory and operation. Yeah. Well, Dan, I think you've done a pretty good job today uh, explaining the problems here, uh, even though it's a long fought battle so far and probably will go on into the future. Uh, and it's, it's interesting. I think the, the Overton window here is, has shifted, and, but it's still very wide in that uh, some states are allowing uh, direct sales and others are you know, still regulating in different kinds of ways. So we'll have to wait and see kind of where this moves into the future. Um, but it certainly seems like it's moving in the direction of more direct auto sales, uh, just because that's kind of where the culture is, it seems like. So, yeah, and I agree with that. And one more thing about this, about the Overton window here, that's particularly interesting is the politics of this question are not neat, neatly left, right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if you think about 
uh, it's funny, some of the worst offender states, the ones that are most close to direct sales are red states that you think would be like, these are free market states, right? These are, right. these are states that would say, why should the government stand in the way of a consumer transacting with the company that wants to sell its car? Um, and, but the story there is that the dealers are powerful businesses and money translates into political outcomes, right? But you certainly have seen um, organizations like, you know, Mackinac Center and uh, and uh, Americans for Prosperity and Institute for Justice and other sort of free market leaning organizations coming out on the side of direct sales. You also get the environmental groups. You get the Sierra Club uh, coming out because they want to push forward uh, EV market penetration. You get the right. consumer groups, Consumer Federation of America coming out saying this is this is better for consumers to have a choice. So what's really interesting about if we're sort of trying to define what that window looks like, what's it mean when you have these, the, you know, the, 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 the Koch brothers and the Sierra Club signing the same letter, uh, which, they, which they've done right on this issue? It tells you that it's an unusual looking window and the politics are unusual and the bedfellows are unusual. Uh, and so it's, it, this is both, I think, really interesting as um, an important issue about how we buy cars. But it's also a, a beautiful microcosm of how politics works, how public choice theory works and the difficulties, frankly, of even when you have this coalition from left to right. Uh, that from consumer groups to environmental groups to free market groups that, that, that are aligned on saying the dealers are getting in the way of, of consumers having a choice and EVs reaching the market, that still isn't enough uh, to change things quickly. So that's, that's the story to keep an eye on for the future. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Dan. That's all the time we have for today. It was great seeing you. Uh, have a great Likewise. rest of your week. Thanks, Mike. All right. Take care. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinaw with a C, like the island.